We have been examining over the last few weeks some of the New Testament metaphors that were used to describe the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all very instructive, but I think this one that is used here in Ephesians chapter 3 brings it to a conclusion for us. Paul bows his knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and he's praying for the church and he names the church uh, whom he describes as the named whole family in heaven and earth. Once again, the imagery is, is taken from the Old Testament scriptures. If you find a preacher who divorces his message from the Old Testament scriptures, you better put him on your suspect list because he's suspect indeed. Paul takes us right back to the dawn of human history and to the creation of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And when God created Adam, Genesis 2.18 informs us that he said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make an help meet for him. Thus Eve was created and brought unto Adam and God coupled them together as one. God coupled a man and a woman together as the first family. And there we leave all the arguments. We just rested there in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. All of the queries today about sexual orientation and gender, it all falls at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. I believe it's a mercy of God that he didn't create us as lone individuals to journey to, uh, throughout the, the, the journey of life on our own. But he put us in families. He put us in our biological families, our adoptive families, our foster families. And we know that the traditional nuclear family today is under attack from every side. And the devil knows in undermining the concept of the family, he can destroy society. And wherever the family is destroyed, society is destroyed. And the church of Jesus Christ, above all others, should strive to protect the family and to protect the children of the families. The family is the foundational building block. And the Bible uses its designation to describe the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's very significant. Here we have a family. A family includes adults. A family includes children. And children are recognized as part of the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only this family on earth, but the Bible tells us this spiritual family in heaven. When the Bible speaks of Christians, I'll, I'll reiterate, reiterate it again today, they're never portrayed as isolated individuals. There are some Christians in, that would like to act like that. Uh, they're so spiritual, they don't need to join any church. Indeed, some of them are so spiritual, they don't even need to go out to the public worship of God. And they say that they just worship God alone at home and that is sufficient. Well, I believe if you're a Christian and you love the Lord Jesus and you're physically and medically fit to go out to the public worship of God, you ought to be there. You ought to be present. Because we're part of a family. This is a family gathering today. You mightn't think so, 
but this is a family gathering on the Money Dyer Road. We're part of the family of God. We're just part of it. We're not saying we're the family, but we're part of the family of God as we meet together for the public worship of God and to proclaim and acclaim the name of the Lord. The other metaphors that we looked at <coughs> were metaphors. But here we're dealing with reality. When the Bible speaks about the church as a family in heaven and in earth, this is reality. We're going to bring to a conclusion this little mini-series uh, on the, the images, the pictures, the metaphors that we find in the New Testament about the church. And I think this is one of the, surely, it has to be one of the most significant of all. We're a family, brethren and sisters. But we're part of a family that's on earth. And we're part of a family that's in heaven. And we're all one. That should strike our hearts and our lives today. And I said to you again, as I've said on many other occasions, you're either in this family or out of the family. You either have the family name or you don't have the family name. And I want that to be a challenge to all of your hearts and lives today. So let's think of the family. First of all, how are we made members of this family? Well, we're made members of this family by adoption. By adoption. We'll come in the Shorter Catechism <clears throat> to question 34. And it speaks, uh, what is adoption? And the answer simply is, adoption is the act of God's free grace, whereby we're received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. We have been received into the number of the family of God. And we have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. It's a wonderful thing to be at a legal adoption, as I have been. And to hear that declaration in the court. And just at that moment of time, to realize that legally this child is part of your family. That is quite an awesome experience. Not only part of the family, but has a right to all the privileges in the family. That's an even bigger wonder and an even bigger marvel. So in the logical order of things, adoption follows justification. Why? Because God cannot accept anybody into his family unless and until that individual is made righteous in his sight. God cannot adopt somebody into his family that is still unrighteous. And so that individual has to be made righteous. And they are, they are declared righteous through a, the wondrous work of justification. So in the experience of the believer, there can hardly be any sense of one being adopted until that individual knows the other, which is justification. The scriptural teaching about adoption I'll put this out here today, has nothing whatsoever to do with what liberal theologians call the universal brotherhood of man, that we're all one. We're all, we're all the family of God. Well, we're not all the family of God because that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said to the unbelievers of his day, ear of your father, the devil. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? He was 
making a, a quite a, a strong line of differentiation. These were his followers. These were his families. But you, you're the unbeliever and you're still in your sin and you're part of the, the family of the devil. So the Bible makes it clear we only become children of God by this, this act of adoption where God in heaven declares the individual who has been justified now to be adopted part of the number and has a right to all the privileges of the family. When a person is adopted, he becomes a member of the family. And if you're saved today, justified by God's grace, you've been adopted into the family. I want you to see that, and I want you to understand that. I want you to understand today that you're bigger than your biological family. If you're a Christian, you're part of the family of God. And that's an awesome truth for us all to contemplate. It is an act of God. It is an act of God by which a person who's been regenerated and called and justified is transferred from the lost race of Adam into the family of the living God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 to 6. So if we break down this whole experience of adoption, we discover that it takes place in a moment of time. It's an act of God. It's not a work that's done over a long protracted period. That's sanctification whereby God makes us more and more conformed unto the image of his son. But adoption is something, although logically follows justification, it is hard to differentiate it in the timeline. But it's done at once. You're part of the family. And if you're saved today and part of the family, you'll be part of the family at the end of the journey. Not just at the start of the journey. And God doesn't put somebody into his family who's truly converted and justified and regenerated. And then at a later stage, he takes away his name and puts them out of the family. There is no place in the Bible that teaches me that you can be put into God's family one day and lose your place in it and be put out of it the next day. If you're in God's family and you've started the race by his grace, you'll finish the race still as part of his family. It's something that remains. And those whom the Father adopts, well, he'll never forsake them. They're in his hands. I, I love that passage. I've been referring people to it often in the past few weeks. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, the great chapter that teaches us about Jesus being the shepherd of his, of his flock. And we read in verse 29, My father which gave them me, the sheep, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. They'll never perish. What, what assurance that is. We read this morning, if you're following McShane's readings, about the, the strong man who's armed, who comes against us. That's the devil. There is nobody who has more in his armament than the devil. And he comes against us. He comes against us to destroy us. But there's a stronger than Satan. And Satan must bow to the stronger Lord Jesus Christ. And not even Satan can even prize that believer out of the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you feel very vulnerable today. Maybe you feel, you, you maybe feel even mentally very... Uh, 
ill at ease today. But I just want to reassure you concerning your standing as part of the family of God. God who put you into the family will not take away your name and he'll keep you in the family. Adoption, I'm glad, is something that we're made conscious of. We're made sons and daughters of the Most High God. We're made sons and daughters. And we're made aware of the fact that we're his son. We're part of his family. People who knew my father, when they see me, they say, Wow, you're so like your dad. I have that family resemblance. And I can't get away from it. I have never tried to get away from it. But I can't get away from it. You can't get away from the family resemblance. You're part of the family. The Bible says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's why uh, in Galatians 4 and 6, where we quote it to you from, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What a wonderful truth it is that I can come and I can say, as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, and Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, collectively we can say as Christians, Our Father. Am I telling a lie when I say that? No, I'm telling the truth. He's my heavenly Father. And I draw nigh to him because he has put that spirit within my heart and made me part of his family. Secondly then, how does God make us aware of the fact that we're part of this wonderful family? Well, the witness the witness is a joint witness. Remember that verse we shared with you, Romans 8, 16? The Spirit itself birth witness with our spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, birth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It's not us alone. It's not us alone. You say, how do you know you're a Harris? I have a birth certificate. And it says who I am. Or it has my name on it. I have more than just this idea in my head that I'm a Harris. I have another witness. And every Christian here today, you have the dual witness. The witness of the Holy Spirit in heaven. The witness of the Holy Spirit in your life. And your own heart and your own heart's experience. That you're part of the family of God. The scripture, of course, is the Spirit's testimony. If you want to know what the certificate is to prove who you are, it's the Bible. This is your spiritual certificate. It's the Bible. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, if you go back there, John's Gospel, chapter 1. Verse 12. The Bible tells me that Jesus said, As many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The word power just simply means privilege. As many as received him, to them give he the privilege to become the sons of God. And if you've received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, as your Master, 
You have the privilege to call yourself the Son of God. This is the Scripture's testimony. How do you know you're a Christian? This is your certificate of birth. It's the Bible itself. The Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you receive when you receive Jesus Christ for salvation. Then you have the right. You have the privilege to be called the sons and daughters of the Most High God. The witness of the Spirit with our spirit, of course can only be experienced when God enables us to say of ourselves uh, what the scripture says about true believers. It is something that God works in our hearts and in our lives. There's, there are many people who read this Bible to criticize it. There are many people who read this Bible to, uh, uh, to, to, to gain ammunition from it, to attack other Christians. But as a Christian, I read the Bible, and I, as I read the Bible... God teaches me who I am. God teaches me who I am. And I want you today to read the Bible and to know who you are. That's why so many Christians today uh, doubt and question so much about who they are. Why? Simply, brethren and sisters, because you're not reading the Bible as you ought to read the Bible. If you're reading it and you're meditating upon it, and you've swallowed it, you'll know who you are. You'll know, this is your certificate. Thirdly, the Bible teaches us about the privileges or the advantages of being a member of the whole family in heaven and in earth. I, I really am lost for words when we speak about the wonder of adoption. Why a God who didn't have to do it should take somebody out of Satan's family and justify that individual and make them righteous and transfer them into his family. That's adoption. We're delivered from the bondage of fear because we're accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 is all about adoption. <clears throat> One day I'll finish Romans chapter 8 and preach through it. But it says we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. But we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We're delivered from fear because we're accepted in Christ. We're led by the spirit because verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Not a wonderful truth today. Led by the spirit. The, the, the Holy Ghost leads me through this word. He leads me through his providence. He leads, me, he leads me through the guidance of other believers. He leads me day by day. He tells me, I will guide thee. I will guide thee. And he guides us in the pathways of truth. He enables us to come to the throne of grace. Once we couldn't have come because we belonged to somebody else. Somebody else was our father. Satan was our father. But now as children of God, we have a heavenly father and he invites us to come to him. If you haven't spoken to your heavenly father today, why not? Why not? For he says, come boldly unto the throne of grace that ye may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come boldly. Sometimes... <clears throat> We're like those parents who hide away from their children. They're too demanding. Or they send their children to other people. 
They're too, just too demanding. But we have the Heavenly Father. He's not like that. He says, no matter what you have to ask, come to me. And don't come timidly. Come boldly. And lay hold upon me. We're assured of his unfailing care. From eternity to eternity. How can you read Romans chapter 8? All about uh, adoption, been put into the family of God, predestination, those that are called, justified, justified, glorified. And think for a moment that the Lord doesn't care about you. Are you not his child today? Are you not his son? Are you not his daughter? How then can you say he doesn't care? Why do you carry such burdens and anxiety and concern in your heart and life? Is he not your father? Bring it to him. I want you to notice as we close out today the agreement in this family. Families have to learn how to agree, don't they? And I think it's because God put us into a family a physical nuclear family that he designed the church likewise to be a family. And Paul makes reference to this earthly dimension. There's a mystical uh, dimension to this that I'm not professing to totally understand, but there's two branches of one family. There's two branches of one family. So the family on earth is a reference to the saints who have been saved and brought into the family of God. And then there's a reference to the family that's in heaven. Those spiritual beings that are in heaven. The angels that are in heaven. I read one commentator and he put it very uh, vividly, very imaginatively. He said, we, we have a large number of heavenly cousins. It's part of our family. God has a family. The saints of God and those spirits, those angelic beings that he preserved and didn't fall. And those in heaven and those in earth, they all have their name in the one register. Somebody asked me in the past week a very, a, a very deep question actually about the Lamb's Book of Life. When was your name put in the Lamb's Book of Life? I let the theologians amongst us try to work that one out. When was your name put in the Lamb's Book of Life? Can it ever be taken out of the Lamb's book of life? But I know one thing. There is a register. It is the book of life. And all of the family, both on earth and in heaven, are named in it. They're all there. Every one of them. The saints above and the saints below, they're all fellow citizens. But strangers in this world. We're fellow citizens in heaven, but strangers in this world. If you belong to the family of God, you're a stranger to the world because the world is dominated by the family of Satan. Ye are off your father the devil. That's what Jesus said to the world of his day. Don't go looking for friendship, young people, in the world because you're looking in the wrong family. As parents, we always... When the children were small, you always tried to guard who your children were friendly with and who they mixed with because you just knew there were wrong families. And when children grow up, they will go looking for a friendship. 
And if they find it in the wrong family, it will destroy them. The family of, of, of sin and the family of Satan. And all of that family, both on heaven and on earth, they're all in the one covenant. They're all in the one covenant. And we're one. The, the Lord knows how we need to be one. one. One with the other and one with the Lord Jesus Christ. The family will never be complete until all are gathered in. And there's a day coming when all of God's family are going to be safely gathered into heaven. There's not going to be one child left outside. They're all going to be in. What a day that's going to be. When all of God's family are gathered around his throne. And that teaches me something. Everybody in the local church is important. The smallest child, the oldest saint, they're all important. Young people don't bypass the older people. Don't say that old man, that old woman, what do they know? They know an awful lot. They have a life of experience behind them. And older person, take time to engage with the younger people. Take time to engage with them. Stop and say hello to them. Ask how they're doing at school. Ask how life is treating them. Engage, engage, engage. That's the key word. I, I have often seen people come into church, they sit beside the same people. It's okay to sit with your family. That's a good thing, I think, to sit with your family in church. But there are others who come in and they come in on their own to church. Do you not sit beside them? I have seen strangers come into church and they sit at the top end of the pew and some Christian comes in and sits at the bottom end of the pew and doesn't even nod up with, doesn't even nod their head at the one at the top of the pew. I've had it happen to me in free Presbyterian pews. Don't let it happen in analog pews. We're one. Because we're one, that concept ought to regulate how we witness together, how we worship together, how we work together. And it was on that basis that many Reformed churches in years gone by put together church covenants or agreements that would regulate how church members would interact and engage one with the other. I've been reading through some of them, but some of them are very legalistic. So the minister draws up a list of rules and you have to follow down those list of rules. And I, I would never like to do that for something that might work for me is not going to work for you. But John Fletcher, the vicar of Madeley, in 1760 published guidelines governing the relationships, the agreements between his church members. And there's some, there's some uh, very, very interesting guidelines there. I did share these before with you a few years ago, but I think they do assist the relationships. I'm not saying we have to tick every one of them off because we couldn't do that, but he, he puts them under three headings. Number one, cease to do evil. Cease to do evil. He starts off, no members should either follow or be led by the glamour and vanity of this evil world through such things as worldly entertainment, dancing and gambling. And no Christian should follow leisure time activities which cannot be followed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a challenge. B, 
No member should give place to softness and needless self-pumpering and laziness. And then goes on to say, neither wear showy or expensive clothing. I will go a wee bit further than that, than the showy or expensive clothing. And I have determined in my mind to come back to it over the next few weeks before we hit the summer months. What about modest clothing? Modest clothing. No member should take part in unprofitable or unkind conversation. Much less shall he be guilty of filthy talking, joking, or speaking behind the backs of others. Oh, it's hard to believe that this is a Christian assembly, isn't it? But it is. I'll post this up on the WhatsApp group. You can read it all. The second major heading is learn to do good. In other words, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule, every member should minister to the physical requirements of others by providing for those in need. Visiting the sick, helping those in trouble. Not just the minister's job to visit the sick. Are they not your family? Are they not your kith and kin, spiritually speaking? Every member should minister to the souls of others according to his power. Every member should do all within his power to reprove the immoral and abandoned conduct of those round about him. How? By the testimony of his own well-ordered and commendable life. You know, it's very easy to stand on a soapbox at a street corner and criticize what other people are doing and at the same time uh, doing the very same thing yourself. Thirdly, this third main heading, seek blessings from God's appointed channels. Every member should attend the worship of God in church. It nearly is too simple, isn't it? Every member must hear the word of God taught and expounded. Every member must take part in the Lord's Supper at every opportunity. Every member who is a parent must minister to his family and children in the faith. Every member must engage in private prayer at least night and morning. Every member must read the scriptures regularly and meditate upon them. I talked this over with Linda last night. I said, if that is all true, in 1700s, in 2024, we're a backslidden church. Are we not a family? If we took seriously our covenant commitments and agreements, we would be a changed family. We ought always to say we're not just reformed Christians. We ought always to say we are reforming Christians. If you have to reform how you view the family, do it. If you have to undo something in your life, to put a wrong right in your life, do it today. Don't wait another day, do it. If you have to put right a wrong with somebody else, do it today. Don't wait for tomorrow, you might never see the dawn of it. Do it. This family that God has put us into, 
the whole family. We're not excluding anybody. The children, the, the, the older believers, the whole family in heaven and on earth. And you carry that name with you. Whose family do you belong to? I remember asking a child who came to Sunday school in Kitali many years ago. And, and who are you? And without hesitation he answered me, I am the son of Lazaro. Can you answer like that? Who are you? I am a member of the family of God. The whole family named in heaven and in earth.